0: let's just pray Father once again we look up to you with a deep sense of dependence deep sense of weakness very conscious that the Subject for this afternoon is so very, very important. We pray that you would help each one of us gain a a deep and thorough impression of the greatness of the Lord Jesus as our High Priest, and to get an impression of the wonderful way that He wants us to associate us with Himself in leading us into worship to you, our Father. Help us to appreciate, help us to understand. Help us now after the activities of the afternoon to to be settled in our spirits, to be attentive in our minds and to be receptive in our hearts. We ask for your help now in the name of the Lord Jesus. amen. 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 So turn to Hebrews chapter 9. After singing it so many times, you're going to be well and truly sick of that chorus. Um never want to sing it again, maybe. I, I was just conscious that um, in regards to the, the four verses, um, probably... There's a little bit too much focus on the activities of the Lord Jesus as advocate to restore us into a position of joy, um, and then suddenly to launch into the fourth verse in association with Christ worshiping the Father, without a verse in between touching on His priesthood. So um, maybe I have to rewrite that and make another verse. There. Not that anyone's ever going to see it, again. But some. So let's read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. It says, But Christ, being come high priest of the good things to come, by the better and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hand, that is, not of this creation, Nor by blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, has entered in once for all into the Holy of Holies, having found an eternal redemption. I don't want to say much about that verse and turn back to Hebrews 2. All I will say is that that verse makes very, very clear that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus is associated with a heavenly system of things. When he was on earth, he would not have been a priest. He could not have been a priest because the Old Testament priests all came from the family of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. And the Lord Jesus wasn't born in that family or in that tribe. He was of the tribe of Judah. He could never have been a priest. But now that he's in heaven... He's the greatest priest that ever there could be. And so we're going to touch on the three points from this morning. His support, his sympathy, and the salvation that he provides for us in regard to his downward service towards us in the difficulties of our lives. And then... We're going to focus on the other aspect of his priestly service, where he wants to draw us near to himself in worship to his God and Father. That's where we're going. I probably should make clear that when we were speaking about the Lord as advocate, the, the scripture was, if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Advocacy has to do with when we commit sins. When we're talking about the Lord Jesus as our priest, functioning towards us in his care and compassion, it doesn't have anything to do with our sins. So in, in, in this, the Scriptures we're looking at now, we're leaving the question of sin behind altogether. We're leaving behind the question of um, any sense of guilt before God We're leaving behind the thought of losing the joy of our fellowship with God. We're looking at a situation where there's one now in heaven who wants to sustain us and keep us going bright and fresh in the joy of Christian things so that we might be liberated to join him in the service of worship to God. So we're going to start in chapter 2, the matter of... Support. Chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For he does not indeed take hold of angels by the hand, but he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. Wherefore it behoved him in all things to be made like to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things relating to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that himself has suffered being tempted he is able to help those that are being tempted I need to say by way of introduction that in Hebrews chapter 2 there are four paragraphs I don't know if it's clear in, in all of your Bibles and some Bibles are not divided into paragraphs. But the four paragraphs go like this. The first one is verses one to four. Second paragraph goes from verse five to ten. The third paragraph goes from verse eleven to fifteen. And then we've read the fourth paragraph. Now the first paragraph it starts with these words for this reason. For this reason. So the first paragraph requires that we think back to chapter one and all of the things that have been said in chapter one. You can't ever take any scripture on its own. But then the second paragraph and the third and the fourth they begin with a different word, the word for. So paragraph number one requires that we look back to chapter one and base the reasons for what is said in paragraph 1 on chapter 1. Make sense? Good. But now, paragraph 2, it begins with the word for. Now, this is now working the other way around. This is saying that paragraph 1 now depends upon what is about to be said in paragraph 2. And when we come to the end of um Paragraph 2, begin the next paragraph in verse 11. 4, this is saying that what was just said in paragraph 2 depends on what is about to be said in paragraph 3. I'm not going to go into the detail because we haven't got time. But when you come to the end of the, say, verse 15, there's been a whole series of things said that are in themselves extremely, extremely important. And then verse 16 opens with this word for he does not. Everything that has been said up until this point depends on what the Apostle is now about to say, and what he's now about to say is that Christ has become a man. He's become a man in such a way that having been made like to his brethren, he would be rendered capable of being a merciful and a faithful high priest and rendered capable of being one who is able to help those that are being tempted. This is not here temptation in the sense of falling into sin. It says here that he, verse 18... He himself has suffered being tempted. There was never any inclination in the Lord Jesus to sin. When Satan presented temptation to the Lord Jesus, it caused him suffering. That's completely different to us, isn't it? When Satan presents <laughs> temptation to us, it kind of tickles us a bit. and we ping on. <laughs> I'm kind of attracted to that. With the Lord Jesus, it was the opposite. When Satan presented temptation to him, it caused him suffering, it caused him pain. So there's a, a strong difference between him and us. But he knows what temptation is because he's been here and he has experienced it. So the three key words here, he's a merciful and a faithful high priest and he's able to help those that are being tempted. um, In order to understand what this help is, everyone remembers the three word summary, support, sympathy, salvation. This word help is the word for which I've used that S support. You look in the dictionary, help and support, they're kind of, um, what's that thing called? It's not a dinosaur, um, a thesaurus. You know, the word book that tells you words that have a similar meaning, um, help and support. There was an old word in the old King James Bible that I know some of you use, and that word is "sucker." Um, it's a word that simply means help, support. Now, to get a feel for this word, we have to go back to the first time it was ever used in the Bible. And that's in the book of Matthew, chapter 15. Just read one verse, trusting that we're a little bit familiar with the context of the verse. Matthew 15, verse 25. It says, but she came and did him homage, saying, Lord, help me. This is the word, help. Well, I have to explain the background the first person that ever asked the Lord for this kind of help was a Gentile woman. A Gentile woman during the days when the Lord Jesus was here, the days of His flesh, when His service was towards the Jewish people. And this Gentile woman, she came and she says, My little daughter's sick, you need to heal her. Son of David, come and heal my little daughter. And hearing those words, the Lord turned her away completely. He said, I've come here to serve the children of Israel. And it's not fitting to give the bread that was destined for the children to give that bread to dogs. It sounds like the Lord was being so insulting with this woman, calling her a dog. Now, it's not the way we use language today. Um, You call a woman a dog today. He brought some trouble. The Lord wasn't being like that. He wasn't referring to her as a woman in that way. He was referring to the fact that his service was to the children of Israel and not to the Gentiles. The Israelites regarded the Gentiles as being dogs, as being those who were outside, who didn't belong in the house, as those who were, were separate from the privileges of Israel. And the Lord said, I haven't come for the service of Gentiles. I've come for the children of Israel. And that woman, she looked at the Lord Jesus and by faith, she said, I am really a dog. I'm in the outside place. I do not deserve your help, but please come and help. The Lord acted with complete faithfulness to that woman in the sense that he told her straight, you're not an Israelite. I've only come here for Israelites. And so I'm, I'm not here to provide that kind of um." healing for your daughter. And the woman in faith towards the Lord Jesus says, please come and help. I really am a dog. If crumbs fall off the table when the children are eating, surely the dogs can eat those crumbs, can't they? Wow. And the Lord said, I've never seen such faith. This, This woman, she's a child of Abraham. She has faith. Anyone who has faith is a child of Abraham. And Remember what we read in, in Hebrews there. He doesn't take hold of angels. He takes hold of the seed of Abraham. He acted in complete faithfulness to this woman because he told her straight the way things were. But she responds with faith. And then he, he responds then to that with absolute mercy. Mercy means giving somebody something... Is that right? A um, not giving somebody something they deserved. She deserved to be left outside. And that's not how he treated her. He treated her with all of the privileges of those who who, um, who deserved his blessing, who deserved his care. He acted with faithfulness. He acted with mercy. And he did just what she said. Please help. And how did he help? He helped by appealing that little girl. He helped by getting that family out of the terrible predicament that they were in. Here's the Lord providing help. Second time that word help is used is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to see exactly these same features. Verse verse 22, there's a father, and that father has a boy who's possessed by a demon. And he comes to the Lord, and he says in verse 22, um, Often it has cast him both into fire and into waters that it might destroy him. But if thou couldst do anything, be moved with pity on us and help us. The Lord replies to him, you know that the word you said, Mr, that if you could, if you could is not if I could help. The if you could is if you could believe. The Lord's acting again with faithfulness to that man. He's telling him straight the way things are. The Lord says, there's no doubt in what I can do. The doubt is, do you believe? And the man, he says, actually, really, my faith is so weak, please. And he uses the word again, help my unbelief. Wow, again, the Lord's compassion is drawn out to that man. His mercy is drawn out to that man. The man's cry for help is answered by the Lord. And the Lord answers him by getting that family out of the terrible predicament that they were in. One more reference to help. um, And that's in the book of Acts, chapter 16. In verse 9, this is the Apostle Paul now. He's waiting on the Lord's guidance. He's wondering where he should go next. And in the night, he has a dream. And in this dream, it says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There was a certain Macedonian man standing and beseeching him and saying, pass over into Macedonia and help us. In in fact, when when that came to pass and Paul went across into Macedonia, the Macedonian man turned out to be a woman and the woman was at a prayer meeting. And that woman, she heard the word of the Lord and the Lord just opened her heart and she received Christ as her saviour. But in the dream, this was the word come over and help us. How was that help going to, to 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 happen? by Paul being personally present in Macedonia. It wasn't Paul, while you're away over there, you pray for us. No, Paul come over here and be here with us, be here with us and help us. And, and this is this is what we we've, we've just well, we've just learned this about the merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help, to support. How does he support? He supports by giving the sense of his presence with us. He provides mercy by getting us out of difficult predicaments that we're in, difficult troubles that we're in. And He is faithful because He tells us things exactly as they are. Now, I just want to repeat again. This has got nothing to do with sin. This has got to do with living our regular Christian lives. And while we're living those lives, we get into difficulties. We get into trouble at work. No, I don't mean trouble like you've done something wrong. You you get into into predicaments at work where somebody is mistreating you, somebody is acting in the wrong way towards you, unfairly. (coughs) It happens at school, it happens at work, it happens everywhere. If we live a Christian life, we'll find ourselves in situations that are difficult. And here the Lord, in this aspect of His priesthood, the support aspect of His priesthood, He comes down and He makes His personal presence felt by us. He gets us out of the difficulty. Time and time again in my career, I need to say this. When you become aware of someone who's backstabbing you, when you become aware of somebody who is doing sneaky, underhanded things to undermine you and your position, don't ever react by defending yourself. Don't react by going to the boss and trying to prove to him that what this guy is saying behind your back don't do that I found time and time again that leaving that with the Lord he always dealt with it, always he's a merciful and faithful high priest and he gets us out of those situations and more than that he makes us aware of his personal presence, his personal support in order to support us in the difficulty of our wilderness journey okay now we that's S number one, help. So S number one, support. we we'll go to number two, um, Hebrews chapter four. Verse 14. Having therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession, for we have not a high priest, not able to sympathize with our infirmities, but tempted in all things in like manner, sin apart. Let us approach, therefore, with boldness to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace for seasonable help. Here's our second S. It's in verse 18. And it's in one of those sentences that would cause an English teacher to freak out completely. Is that right? Verse, uh, verse 15. Verse 15. You know... Um, did you ever get told by your English teacher? Don't use a double negative. Well, Paul says, I don't care about what the English teacher told me. I'm not writing in English. I'm writing in Greek. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities. You know what he's saying? He's saying, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our infirmities. But he puts it around the other way. So he, he, he makes our antennas go up. It, oh, what are you saying here? He says... We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathise. I suppose that's a contrast with some of those high priests who lived during the history of Israel. You think of the last high priests that ever lived in the time of Israel. In the Young People's Bible Study in in Melbourne, we were just talking about those the other day. There should have been one high priest and somehow there were two. And instead of sympathising, instead of caring, instead of supporting, they were condemning one who was Righteous. The Lord Jesus. We don't have a high priest like that. We have a high priest who can sympathize. Now, compared to this word, this other word, help, that begins with S, support, this word sympathize, it's only used one other time in Scripture. Just once. And that's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. where it says to the Hebrew Christians, he says for ye both sympathised with prisoners and accepted with joy the plunder of your goods knowing that ye have for yourselves a better substance and an abiding one. He's reminding the Hebrews he said, you guys you know, in, in the course of your Christian lives you've acted in a way which is very, very commendable. You know other Christians who are in prison. And although you didn't go there into prison yourself, you know exactly how they feel. You know exactly how they feel because you felt it yourself. You felt what they felt without having to go where they are. Now that's sympathy. Remember the the help one, the support? He makes us feel his personal presence with us where we are. But now this second aspect of his priesthood, he doesn't come to where we are. We go to where he is. It says, verse um, 16, let us approach, therefore, with boldness, the throne of grace. When he supports, he comes where we are. When he supports, He is faithful when he supports. He's merciful in mercy. He gets us out of our predicament. But we're going up now on an ascending line. Now he's not coming to where we are. We're going to where he is. We're going to the throne of grace where he is. And here he adds something, not just mercy. He says uh, at the end of verse 16 that we may receive mercy. But he adds something else, he says, "And find grace for seasonable help. Mercy and grace. Now um, I had to double check with Shabby and Mike just then about you know, what, what mercy means. Mercy, in a judicial sense, means that we don't get what we deserve. What do we all deserve? We all deserve the eternal flame of hell. Every one of us, but God acting in mercy means that because of his love and compassion, based on the work of Christ, he says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to rescue you from that. Grace means something different. Grace means God giving to us what we don't deserve. Giving to us a place in glory, giving to us the sorts of things we've been talking about this weekend Giving that to us when, naturally, we don't deserve it all. That's talking on a judicial sense. I want to talk about mercy and grace now on a practical level. On a practical level, mercy is when the Lord comes along and we're in some kind of difficulty, we're in some kind of predicament, some financial trouble, some health trouble, some other difficulty, and the Lord comes along and He gets us out of the difficulty. That's mercy. The Apostle Paul asked for that. He said, I've got this thorn in the flesh. It's troubling me so badly. And he prayed three times for it. He says, please take away the thorn in the flesh. I don't know if it was there or there or wherever his thorn in the flesh was. And the Lord said to him, I'm not going to take away your thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to give you mercy. I'm not going to get you out of the difficult situation. What I am going to do is give you the inner power and strength to be able to live a triumphant Christian life while the difficulty still remains. There's a difference between how the Lord acted with that Gentile woman and with that man who had a demon possessed son. He didn't say to them, I'm going to give you the power to be able to continue your lives triumphantly while the problem's still there. He didn't do that then. But now for us as believers, that there, there really is an advance on mercy. One of the greatest triumphs in this world is to see Christians living lives where they experience the same sorts of difficulties as unbelievers. And yet, while experiencing those difficulties, they're not going through it. Oh, why is me? I just can't cope anymore. And why is God so harsh towards me and it's terrible and life's not worth living? To see Christians who are unhealthy. See Christians who are struggling financially. To see Christians who are in refugee camps. To see Christians who are in all kinds of difficult situations. Joyful, triumphant. I don't hesitate to mention this. Many of us will remember a young sister from Melbourne, Renee, who died of cancer. Much too young in the world's eyes. And in the last months of her illness, her faith and her power spiritually shone so brightly that everyone who came into contact with her during those times was just astounded. that that's grace. That's the Lord giving power to triumph while still leaving the difficulty there. That's the work of our great High Priest. This is not him coming down to where we are and getting us out of trouble. This is us going to where he is and him providing us the power to be sustained and maintained in Christian joy while the difficulty is still there. That's wonderful. Now, I have to keep moving to chapter seven. So we've had support, sympathy, and in chapter seven, we come to salvation Verse 23 it says, And there have been many priests on account of being hindered from continuing by death. But he, because of his continuing forever, has the priesthood unchangeable. Whence also he is able to save completely those who approach by him to God, always living to intercede for them. For such a high priest became us, holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and become higher than the heavens. He is able to save completely those who approach by him to God. You notice we've now notched up another level. In the first He sympathizes by, in the first, he supports by coming down to where we are, getting us out of trouble. In the second, we go to where he is, we approach the throne of grace, and he provides sympathy, and he provides grace, gives us power. Now, we're not approaching him, we're approaching by him to God. And it says he's able to save us completely. This is, not, this is not the salvation of a sinner from hell. I need to make that really clear. I know preachers have often said, using the old King James translation, that has, he's able to save to the uttermost. They used to say, he's able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. This is not talking about getting a sinner out of the gutter and getting him into heaven. This is not now rescuing the sinner from going into the fires of hell. This is now salvation for the believer. And what kind of salvation? A kind of salvation that's the next level in advancement up from receiving grace. In receiving grace, we're still going through the difficulty and we've got power in order to be still joyful and triumphant in our Christian lives. Now it's one notch up further. Now, it's we are approaching God by Him. We're still in difficulties. We've got that power. And we're not just, well, the Lord's given me power. Now, there is in our hearts a spirit of worship. We're approaching by Him to God. That's the kind of salvation that he's talking about here. What a salvation that is. Saved from every influence, every effect that would press us downwards and hold us down and be so liberated that we can, while all that's going on, be in a spirit of worship towards God. I don't know if you remember King Jehoshaphat. Um, you might not. He's not one of those commonly studied kings. He's going out. He's facing an army. I think the army had a million um, people in the army that he's facing absolutely impossible <laughs> odds and Jehoshaphat gets his men together and they march off to the army worshiping and praising God and when that song of worship and praise to God was heard God completely delivered them from that enemy this this is sort of the picture of it here this is not deliverance by getting us out of trouble this is not not deliverance by giving us power in the trouble this is deliverance by enabling us to be maintained in a spirit of worship, no matter what, no matter what difficulties and problems have happening around about. That's how His priesthood is working downwards towards us in the problems and trials of our wilderness journey. But we've got only 15 minutes, and in 15 minutes, starting at. Chapter 8, verse 1. We start to get into something new completely. The Apostle says here, Now a summary of the things of which we are speaking is, We have such a one high priest who has sat down on the right hand of the throne of the greatness in the heavens, minister of the holy places, And of the true tabernacle, which the Lord has pitched and not man. Now, my Bible has got a little footnote, a very helpful little footnote. Those opening words now a summary of the things which we're speaking. Usually when we talk about a summary, um, anyone who's a school teacher will know this. I've taught you this whole bunch of stuff and now I'm going to give you a summary. Three points. Now you can remember. That's not the way Paul's using summary here. He's using summary in this sense. I'm about to tell you the key point of the thing of which I'm now going to speak. The key point about this new topic I'm bringing you into is we've got a high priest. He sat down at the right hand <laughs> of the greatness of the heavens and he's there in a totally new capacity. And, and what's that new capacity? He's called in verse 2 the minister of the holy places, or the I, I like the old word, the minister of the sanctuary. He's there functioning in an official capacity, an official priestly capacity, um, in what he calls the true tabernacle. Now, when he talks about the true tabernacle, we've got to be a little bit familiar with the Old Testament the Old Testament tabernacle. In that that structure, there was a system of things where the physical, material priests were to bring physical, material sacrifices and bring physical, material incense and, and other kinds of physical, material gifts. Once a year... They went through this beautiful veil that was made of gold and blue and purple and fine twined linen. It was woven so as to look really attractive. But it was also a barrier that people couldn't go in on a regular basis. Once a year, they were allowed to go right into the presence of God and offer to God (coughs) In, in a sense of liberty in their hearts, offer worship to God in a picture form. What the apostles saying here is we have someone who is serving now in the spiritual and heavenly real thing of which that Old Testament tabernacle was just a picture. Verse 5, it talks about that tabernacle as a representation and shadow of heavenly things. It talks about it a a little further on, that Old Testament tabernacle, as an image of what we have now. Now read um, in chapter 8, verse 3, about those Old Testament priests for every high priest is constituting for the offering both of gifts and sacrifices. That's the Old Testament priests. (coughs) Now he talks about Christ. He says, whence it is needful that this one also should have something which he may offer. If then indeed he were upon earth, he would not even be a priest. There being those who offer the gifts according to the law. See what he's saying here? If in the Old Testament, those priests had to offer gifts and sacrifices, so now also in the new heavenly system of things, this one whom he has called the minister of the sanctuary, he must have something to offer. I'm not talking about when he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, because he's making plain that he wasn't a priest then, he could not have been a priest then. He's talking about the gifts that he offers now. What, what kind of gifts does the Lord Jesus, as minister of the sanctuary, offer to God? He's all to think about that. And in what way does he do that? How does he do that? In the course of this chapter, the Apostle goes on to speak of the New Covenant. And when he speaks of the New Covenant, he he speaks of something that God is going to do in the future with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he picks out from Old Testament scriptures that speak about the New Covenant, he picks out just a couple of points. He excludes all of the points that are physical and material and relate to Israel as a people and as a nation and as a land where they live and relate to them being supreme above the Gentiles and relate to them, again, getting victory over their enemies. He he leaves out all of those things connected with the new covenant. And he only picks on a couple of things. And the things that he picks on... um, we better just read some of those towards the end of the chapter. Um, the first, in verse 10, he says, I'm going to put my laws in their mind and will write them also upon their hearts. There's going to be a deep internal knowledge of the Word of God and the standards of God. The second thing, also in verse 10, I will be to them for God and they shall be to me for people will have not only an intimate knowledge of the standards of God, will have an intimate knowledge of God himself. And the third thing, verse 11, they shall not teach each his fellow citizen and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they shall know me in themselves, from the little one even to the greatest. A deep personal knowledge of God. And then the last thing, verse 12, Sins and their lawlessnesses I will never remember anymore. He speaks here about the new covenant. I don't know if anyone else has ever wondered why on a Sunday morning when we come together to remember the Lord Jesus in the breaking of bread why it was that the Lord Jesus when he he left to his people this privileged thing to do, why it was that he said to them when he gave them the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Have you ever wondered why that is? Because I have to say this, why did the Lord Jesus ask us to remember him in the breaking of bread? Was it so that we don't forget him? I think that's nonsense. That's just silly, isn't it? saying, well, just in case you might forget, we'll come together and remember sometimes. We don't forget the Lord Jesus. We're We're living a Christian life. We speak to him every day. That's not why he asked us to remember him. Why did he say, remember me? And why did he not say, worship me? I think the answer to that is fairly plain. Because if he said, come together and worship me, you know what we'd do? We'd come together and we'd say, Lord, we worship you. Whoops, we do that sometimes, don't we? But he didn't say that. He said, remember me. And why did he do that? Because the act of focusing our attention on him and being engaged with him and speaking to him about those things that we appreciate concerning him, you know what that is? That's worship. So... The Lord doesn't put the cart before the horse. To say, worship me, that's putting the cart before the horse. And what we end up doing is just using terms and phrases and words. But He wants something in substance from our hearts. That is, we get totally occupied with Him, focused on Him. And that focus is worship. But let's not stop there. Why did He want us to come together and remember Him? Why does he want to be in the midst of an assembled company who appreciate him? What does he want to do when he's there? This is exactly what we're reading about now. Exactly what we're reading about. Just flick back. He gives a big hint about this back in (coughs) Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 9, we see Jesus. Verse 9, we see Him as a suffering, lowly man. Verse 9, we see Him now crowned with glory and honour. Verse 10, we see Him as the one crowned with glory and honour, bringing with Him many sons to glory. Verse 11, we see ourselves united together with Him verse 12, we hear him declaring the Father's name in the midst of those he calls his brethren. And in verse 12, we hear him in the midst of his brethren singing the praises of his God and Father. Why does he want us to be together with himself in the midst, with himself as our focus, with the cup as a reminder of the new covenant, Because with all of those things having come before us and the sense of liberty we have in our hearts and spirits as a result of being engaged with that kind of occupation, He wants us to be free to join with Him, Him who is the minister of the sanctuary, to join with Him in the worship of His God and Father. That's what He wants. So let's just track back. These glories of the Lord at God's right hand. He wants to have us near him. He wants us to be joyful. He wants to have us with him. And he wants to be in our midst as the one leading our worship to his God and Father. He has connected us with himself in a wonderful way. Welcome. Were you early or late? A little bit early for the next meeting. Yeah. Okay. Come, come in, Bye. sit down. Bye. In connection with, we're just finishing off um, okay. um, considering the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. Good. I just want to finish off now um, with. One more reference in Hebrews chapter 10. (coughs) Starting in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness for entering into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way which he has dedicated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, sprinkled as to our hearts from a wicked conscience and washed as to our body with pure water. Here is the... I don't know what we can call it. Here's the pinnacle to which the Apostle has been leading in the presentation of the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. He gives us here seven incentives for drawing near. The first one, he says, by the blood of Jesus. A new way. A completely new way for drawing near into the presence of God was the blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, they had sacrifices, they had offerings, and they found they actually couldn't draw near. They had to stand away back. But now the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus on the cross by the blood of Jesus, he says, here's the first incentive for drawing near the finished sacrificial work of Christ, we can go into the presence of God. The second reason, he says, it's not just a new way, it's a living way. And what's the living way? He says it's the veil, the flesh of the Lord Jesus. Now, I only have a couple of minutes left. I want to be really plain because many have not heard this. When they read about the veil here, most people, their minds immediately go to what happened in the temple at Jerusalem when the Lord Jesus died. This veil here is not the veil of the temple at Jerusalem. This veil is figured by exactly what the entire book of Hebrews is talking about. The veil of the tabernacle. And that veil was never torn from top to bottom. That veil was always intended to be a picture of what exists now in the heavenly system of things. And in that heavenly system of things, what's there? There's a living man, a man who in all the glory of his humanity, glorified by God, is that same Jesus that we learn about who lived here in this world. And that living, glorious man, he says to us, because I'm here, because I'm here in in the presence of God, you also can come here. Wonderful thing. Sacrifice of Christ, the present glory of Christ. And then um, the next thing he says, we also have a great priest over the house of God. We can enter into the presence of God, knowing that it's the Lord Jesus as our great priest who wants to lead us in worship there. He wants to worship God. And he wants us to join with him in the worship of God. Are these not three, just, they're mind-blowing incentives for drawing near into the presence of God for worship. Now, we've run out of time. I'm not going to speak about the next four in any detail. The next four are, we've got a true heart. That means we genuinely want to. The next, we have full assurance of faith. That means I definitely, certainly know Christ as my Saviour. I'm not troubled about doubts and fears, thinking, oh, am I saved or not? Am I going to heaven or not? Do I know God or not? No, I have full assurance of faith. The third thing sprinkled as to our hearts from a wicked conscience. I am one who has seen the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, and I know that that work was for me. When He shed His blood on the cross of Calvary, it was so that my filthy, sinful heart might be completely cleansed before God. And then the fourth thing, washed as to our body with pure water. That's a reference to what we had last night, that we've been born again. Born again by the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be born again, again and again and again. Only once. Um, The Lord Jesus said that to Peter. The one who's been washed doesn't need to wash all over again. He just needs to wash his feet. Having been born again, having been sprinkled as to our hearts from a wicked conscience, having full assurance of faith, Having a genuine heart, we can draw near into the presence of God and enjoy the service of the Lord Jesus as a great priest over the house of God, knowing that He wants us there. Summarize again. He wants us near Him. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be with Him. He wants to lead us to worship to His God and Father these are some of the influences and effects of his present position of glory at God's right hand and I think I've got to stop